1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Critical Theory, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Louisa Han, and for this episode, I'm really pleased to be joined by Alex Williams and Jeremy Gilbert to discuss their new book, Hegemony Now How Big Tech and Wall Street Won the World and How We Win It Back, um, which is out now with Verso Books. Alex, Jeremy, Thanks for taking the time to tell us more about this book. How are you both?
1: Well, I'm fine, thanks. I mean, yeah, I'm doing, is... I'm, I'm doing fine, yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs>
0: um, so I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Um, I had the chance to read the book recently, uh, which was great, um, and found kind of your focus on the, the limitations of contemporary left strategy and the nature of what we're up against kind of really valuable and convincing. Um, so just to kind of Gloss the book's um, kind of subject matter for the audience very briefly. Um, it offers, you know, a diagnosis of the ways in which power operates um, in our current conjuncture, characterised as that is by the dominance of um, big tech and finance capital, um, and also offers um, quite a careful unpacking of neoliberalism's development over the decades, obviously a hot topic given um what seems to be, you know, the erosion of active enthusiasm for the model in recent years. Um, And finally, um, as listeners can probably guess from the book's title, um, you focus on the question of strategy and how people losing out um, in our current system, which is the majority, um, can start to push back against the seeming kind of all-encompassing power of Wall Street and Silicon Valley. Uh, So before we kind of get into the specifics of um, the book, could you tell us a little bit more about uh, your respective backgrounds um, and how you decided to join forces and write the book together?
1: Well, <laughs> um, I come out of cultural studies, really. You know, I come out, I mean, I'm at the based at the University of East London, um, although only sort of hanging on to an academic career by my fingernails, and... Um, because I come, you know, that was once upon a time, like one of the centers for cultural studies in Britain and the cultural, st- and I also, I'm also the editor of a journal called New Formations. And I would say I come out of this version of cultural studies, which sees itself as the sort of classical tradition of Williams and Hall, which has wants to take a very capacious approach to understanding contemporary power relations and also to engage with the questions of political theory and political philosophy to the extent that those investigations generate the need to do so. And of course, also that's also shaped by the fact, you know, I've, also been, I've always been on the political left and kind of active on the political left. And I tend to think that across the social sciences and the humanities, really the most urgent political questions are the ones posed by the movements which emerge uh, in opposition to various forms of oppression including the the generalized forms created by capitalism. And um, uh, I mean, how we came together, I mean, Alex can talk about his background, but we sort of, we started to get to know each other well shortly before uh, we we met through, you know, a mutual friend, um, Mark Fisher actually. And, but quite shortly after meeting, Alex was looking to start a PhD. And I had a, I I was able to, we had some funding going at UEL, and he became my PhD student. And during that time, he, he ended up deciding to work on the question of hegemony, the idea of hegemony, which at the time was quite unfashionable, and, it was, and, um, and um, I had some sort of notes for various aspects of how to sort of rethink the idea of hegemony, which had mostly been sitting around unpublished and didn't really get read by anybody but Alex until he, uh, when he was undertook that PhD. Partly because at the time it was a really untrendy topic, like I say, and um, and then basically once he'd finished his PhD, um, and um, you know we and he had he had had a very successful book project with Nick Cernicek a few years ago, another friend of ours, and you know we needed it, we needed it, we both needed it, we both needed to decide a new project to work on, and we decided to work on this book.
2: Yeah, so um, my my background slightly different to Jeremy's because I, I was you know very much a kind of philosopher um, and really sort sort of came of age during uh, the era within sort of continental philosophy where I was very interested in things like um, speculative realism. And that was really sort of a very weird way that I came to the same kind of theoretical interest as Jeremy from from quite a different direction. Um, And really just sort of being inspired by the frustrations with the usual ways in which we understand politics, the usual ways in which we kind of uh, image power and understand strategy. Um, And all of that kind of led into... Uh, the book that I wrote my friend Nick Cernacek, uh, Inventing the Future, which kind of had quite a lot of content on stuff like um, hegemony, though it wasn't really the focus of the book. And it led into my PhD, where I kind of, under Jeremy's sort of tutelage, became increasingly focused on this concept of hegemony as being a sufficiently complex way of understanding power. And that, you know, could could work, you could work to kind of expand it in various um, in various ways um, and this sort of led us to writing the book and particularly focusing it in on um, you know a number of areas in which we think it's it, it would be very useful to kind of understand the power formations of our world uh, through hegemony with sufficient kind of work being done and that's really the sort of the starting point of the book which is that you know exactly as you said in your intro actually summarizing it very well you know in order to affect change we need to have an understanding of of power and this doesn't necessarily need to be you know an assertion of kind of theory of practice because we would both probably argue in fact we do that you know all people who are operating within a political sphere will will have some at least you know perhaps just tacit knowledge of the kind of operations we're talking about is the kind of um sort of knowledge that comes from trying to affect change, and not just people on the left, but also people on the on the right and centre as well, um, because we do have a kind of claim that this is, you know, this is a, a realist account. This is what power is like. So if you're good at obtaining power or manipulating power or contesting power, to some extent, you'll be operating, whether consciously or not, within a kind of hegemonic framework. Uh, certainly that's what we want to argue anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. Great, thanks for that. Um, so just assuming there's going to be some listeners who might not be kind of au fait with all of the terms um, that we'll be kind of using shortly. I think it might be helpful if we kind of start with some definitions, if that's all right. Um, so firstly, let's get into what you term actually existing neoliberalism is distinct from neoliberal theory, um, as this will help to, I think, contextualise maybe the political moment we're currently living through. And obviously neoliberalism is a word that um, I think Warren's Continued re examination given the varied ways it's deployed in different contexts and different points in history. So, could you give us a sense of um, what you mean by actually existing neoliberalism, including some of its key characteristics and how it differs now from, say, the Thatcherite mode of neoliberalism that people often kind of default to when describing the phenomenon?
1: Well, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean. It- the term actually existing neoliberalism initially is just is just an attempt to differentiate neoliberalism as an actual complex of policies and programs and power relations and institutions from neoliberal ideas as constituted in the classic texts of the neoliberal tradition. And the reason we make that distinction is partly because we feel that if you if you look at the gene the history of writing about neoliberalism and its history in English well I mean, it actually starts very late I mean you given how ubiquitous the term became it's quite surprising now but it's very late it, the term had been in use in uh, places like France and the spanish-speaking world for years and years and it's not really until the early 2000s that people have really start start to published a lot about it and David Harvey's book A Brief History of Neoliberalism probably the first significant text um it's a uh, um and it's essentially a marxist account which isn't really interested in the the pre the sort of prehistory of neoliberalism before the 70s in the writing of people like Hayek it's it's interested in the way in which a particular set, sets of governments from the early mm-hmm. 70s onwards start implementing programs which are recognizably neoliberal whether or not they actually derive those policy agendas from that neoliberal intellectual tradition then after that most of the most prominent um, the best known books published on neoliberalism and its history after that they almost all focus on this particular narrative according to which the Montpellier society founded in the 1930s by a group of you know liberal think philosophers and thinkers and economists who are scandalised and dismayed by the success of collectivist politics in the world of you know, the Soviet Union, the New Deal, etc. Um, and then the, the the success of their project, of propagating their ideas is so great that by the 1980s they're, they're able to sort of take over the world. And all well, that story is immensely valuable, but we I think we did feel that the, the pendulum had really swung too far uh, towards what is this effectively a pretty idealist account to be honest which doesn't really take it sufficient uh, uh, cognizance of the extent to which the neoliberals were basically fringe thinkers even on the political right up until the sometime in the 70s and it was only a particular configuration of political forces which made it possible for their ideas to be be deployed and also their ideas were never deployed in a pure form maybe some outliers like like georgia you know the the uh, former so, i mean the the Eastern European state, not the American state, but places like that where they've really tried to do a flat tax or something have been like properly Hayekian neoliberal. But for the most part, neoliberal concepts, ideas and rhetorics have been deployed precisely and only to the extent that they serve the interest of a particular configuration of class forces. And also our key contribution, I think, to this is to stress the extent to which um, that configuration of class forces has always included... The emergent tech sector from the 70s onwards—it's not—it's uh, not—it's uh, never been just finance capital and the banks, which is the story conventionally told by most Marxist accounts. So I've gone on a bit there. But you should—you should add something.
2: Yeah, I think—I think it's also that you know, it's not—you know, ideas are important, um, but as Jeremy has said, it's—it's it's not just about ideas. It's about the realities of power as it kind of, you know, exists on the ground. And it's also about the way in which neoliberalism had to work to solve, you know, essentially the crisis of the 1970s, the global kind of economic, political, and we would argue sort of hegemonic crisis. And in doing so, you know, it's not just about convincing people that your ideas are right um, or that your ideas are inevitable. It's also um, about kind of creating systems that work with the emergent dynamics of the time, And what we mean specifically in terms of actually existing neoliberalism is, you know, alongside the ideas, alongside the kind of what we might think of as the purely political forces, there is a kind of, you know, upswing in things like, you know, globalisation, in terms of things like uh, globalised shipping, in terms of things like computerization, And these are not tendencies that are inevitably going to, to lead to neoliberalism by any means. But they were tendencies that neoliberalism was able to To use and to and to in turn shape um, in ways that serve to embed it. So by that we mean we would mean things like you know globalised shipping um, and the kind of you know the 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 technology of of the shipping container as a very very flexible um, uh, and 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 kind of easy way of moving goods around the world in great numbers enables you to break down your sort of supply chains if you're a business and effectively in the the global north you know de which effectively enables you to destroy the power of unions so all you know this is a, a technology that enables that simultaneously you've got computerization which enables all you know alongside the tech sector enables all kinds of um, forms of coordination um, that that were used to kind of serve the neoliberal agenda so it's the idea of actually existing neoliberalism is designed to focus us, you know, focus our attention on, you know, what is it that neoliberalism actually did rather than what were its ideals, which were only ever kind of very imperfectly realised.
0: OK, so let's kind of bring in the like Grant, Gramscian element of um, the book, I suppose. So thinking about the um, term hegemony, which we've used quite a lot in the past 10 minutes, Um so obviously it's a concept that you draw from um, Antonio Gramsci um, and sometimes it's deployed to mean kind of erroneously straightforward dominating power or you know sometimes a bit reductively to talk about how culture operates politically rather than viewing the two as like intertwined. Um so can you give us a quick overview of the term and why it provides a useful framework for considering political strategy and maybe go into a few of the related terms like coercion passive or active consent.
1: Yeah,
2: okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll take an initial stab and then I'll hand over to Jeremy. So the, the sort of, the basic definition of hegemony, and it was really good that you kind of differentiated it from some of its kind of more common usages, which are either to describe sort of cult, the political implications of culture or practices of outright domination, um, which it certainly includes, but is not reducible to. Basically, what is hegemony? Um, it is a form of leadership. Uh, that's that's kind of where the, the, the term comes from in the kind of Gramscian tradition, the tradition of Antonio Gramsci, the Italian uh, communist uh, and political theorist who, who we kind of draw on most explicitly. Um, but exactly what this sort of leadership means um, is a sort of complicated question. So in our sort of take on it, this leadership might involve individual leaders, you know, individuals who, who are leading kind of, Um, sort of political parties, social movements and so on. Um, But really what it means is the ability to determine at a kind of fairly sort of abstract level the direction of travel for a society. So, you know, it's, it's, it's in that sense that we maybe could talk about neoliberal hegemony. What was it? It was an ability to kind of continuously lead sort of neoliberal societies to become uh, more and more neoliberal in nature over time. And that ability to kind of um, lead them, sometimes it meant, you know, a figure like Thatcher or Reagan, sometimes it meant figures like Clinton and Blair. Um, but it also meant a kind of much more uh, dispersed understanding of um, leadership in the sense of kind of creating processes, um, structures, which would lead society over time to become more and more uh, neoliberal. In nature, Um, and you know, these processes could mean things like, um, you know, within neoliberal societies, you you often end up with a kind of a cast of professional managers who who have been trained to with certain kind of management um, styles, uh, which mean that organisations, not just in the private sector but in the public sector, become you know are are increasingly managed over time in a neoliberal way. It could mean within education. you know, the widespread use of things like standardized testing in America or in the UK league tables, everything has a metric attached to it. Everything is kind of quantifiable. Um, Everything is therefore kind of led towards becoming more and more competitive over time. Um, And you kind of, you're able to instill through these kind of more systemic interventions, uh, the kind of sort of ethics and, and and common sense and ways of living that are going to be supportive of neoliberalism more generally.
1: Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I would just add to, on the question about passive and active consent. Classically, within Gramscian political theory, the notion of consent is very important, because the idea that the non-hegemonic groups in society, in some sense, consent to the hegemony of the hegemonic, rather than simply being physically dominated is, is a central component of the concept. But we think a lot of the time, in English language usages of the term overemphasise the assumption that consent must be explicit and enthusiastic and unqualified. The idea that you know, what it means to accept neoliberal hegemony is to become a card-carrying with Thatcherite or Blairite. Whereas we would say that under the circumstances Alex has just been describing, for example, if you take the the example of the education system, you know, that I've worked in for decades now. You know, most most professional educators, this is certainly true, say, both in the UK and the US, don't believe in standardized testing. Like the vast majority do not believe it serves any educational or pedagogic function but they, rec- they recognize it as a disciplinary mechanism which is dis- imposed upon them in order to force them into certain kinds of behavior. But they also recognize that the political conditions oblige them to at least partially you know, I- I exhibit those behaviors. So people find themselves having to defer to it. And it's that sense of deferral, that sense that to a large extent, you know, people find themselves in a position where... They're not engaged in active resistance, even though they don't particularly like what's happening. Which we use the term passive consent to describe. It's a term Gramsci uses. Uh, I mean, possibly only once in in all of his writing. He is just as an aside. He says consent can be active or passive, and we've kind of run with this. But we think it's really important, especially for understanding consent to neoliberalism, given that historically, if you look at direct opinion polls, for example, most neoliberal policies have never been popular in the countries they've been carried out.
0: Yeah, great. And I think um, another key term that Gramsci uses that's kind of will be kind of related and useful to think about is uh, the idea of common sense okay. to think about, um, particularly in the. Um, context of the book about the dominance of you know, the finance sector and the neoliberal ideology surrounding it. Um, so what do we mean by um, common sense, um, particularly um, how we might go about challenging capitalist norms and how does it differ from, say, false consciousness, for example, because um, there's kind of some confusion around that maybe
2: yes so so common sense is 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 one of those terms that obviously has a currency beyond sort of gramscian theory people people use it in in an everyday kind of sense um but for gramsci it's very much um a matter of 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 the kind of ways in which uh power is able to kind of shape the the kind of the models people build of the world in a kind of very general sense so um and in a kind of sort of more specific way, if we're thinking about, you know, what are the kind of institutions that help forge this common sense that that kind of enable, which gives you a kind of maybe it's not quite a world view, but it's it's maybe something that could lead to world views that could shape world views. I mean, it's it, you know, again we're thinking about things like schools, universities. Um, we're thinking especially in the modern context of um, mass media, digital media. And their kind of ability to um, create a sense of of what is acceptable and unacceptable. So it's this sense of kind of you know we we certainly wouldn't subscribe to the kind of theory, for example, that I don't know media just kind of you know would injects us with beliefs. But what it does do is it does create a context in which we we grow to understand. What is likely to be expected, and what is acceptable and unacceptable. So it's this kind of second-order effect where um, individuals, you know, you can you can think otherwise, but 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 you will understand that the majority, or at least the way that it's it's represented through these forms, are, are going to think um, differently. So how is this not just us insisting on a kind of um, false consciousness? So false consciousness is an idea sort of popular in classical Marxist theory, where you're trying to solve a problem, which is, you know, according to Marx, or at least the Marx of, um, you know, uh, the Communist Manifesto, at least, uh, the kind of the process of, cap- of, of, of societies becoming cap- industrial capitalist societies is one in which you're going to see this great kind of filtering of people into two classes. Based on their relationships to, uh, you know, where they are in the system of production, are they owners or are they wage workers? If you if you work for a wage, you will have a set of interests. Those interests are objective. Uh, similarly, if you're a capitalist or, or or you earn your money from from shares in capitalist enterprises, you will have a different set of interests, and those interests are directly opposed. And there will be more people who are proletarian uh, workers than capitalists, and and eventually you know, they will come to recognise those interests and we'll have a revolution and we'll begin to institute socialism. But the problem problem sort of Marxism has, has faced is, well, how do we explain when workers don't do that? And moreover, when they do things like, you know, um, support fascist parties or, you know, maybe vote for the Tory party or the the, the Republicans, and a popular answer is false consciousness, that that they are... They have been uh, through a sort of mystificatory process led to, um, you know, identify themselves with interests that are not their own. And, and, you know, what's the answer to that on a kind of strategic level? What should we do about that? Well, we should educate, you know, it's normally some form of education, that people are, have been miseducated in some way. And that's not entirely wrong. Um, but our answer to that is maybe a bit more, more complicated and kind of gets into our um, sort of understanding of interests so I hand over to Jeremy here because I think he'll, he'll have something interesting to say
1: okay sure yeah so um, we're very interested in this notion of interests and and firstly to say Gramsci himself when he writes about this idea of common sense which just refers to I mean, really, it would translate best in contemporary parlance as something like conventional wisdom—just like the the complex of everyday ideas and habits people have for thinking about the world. He argues that it it, it never it, it never or rarely adds up to a completely coherent ideology. It's made up of various bits and pieces that people just sort of muddle along with, but a lot of it does consist of certain habits of mind based on people understanding they, what they have to. Believe or behaviours, if they believe, to get along in a particular society, and but Gramsci also famously always says that he says that that, the common sense is never just a completely false set of beliefs, so it's never simply completely false consciousness. It's never just a completely wrong understanding of people's place in the world, and that there is always a kernel of what he calls good sense. And that kernel of good sense, from Gramsci's perspective, is the, the extent to which people do have some some sort of intimation of where their real interests might or might not lie. So, for example, you know, for example, well, if people end up supporting far right parties, for example, and believing all sorts of nonsense about a global cosmopolitan elites wanting to suppress them, uh, they are mostly completely wrong. But they are not wrong that, for example. You know, global, you know, international capitalists uh, are not on their side. Yeah, you know, they're right about that bit. They're they're wrong about the rest of it. And the bit of the, where they're usually right is the bit where they are intimating something of their interests. Now, this question of interest then is really important. And the no, really, if you think about the evolution of Marxist and post-Marxist political, social, cultural theory, uh, especially in English, uh, over the past few decades at least there's a big upsurge of interest in marxist theory coming out of the radical waves of the you know, 60s and 70s and then as had really already happened once decades previously uh, there's a general realization that marxist theory hasn't seemed to be able to predict the behavior of large populations because they have not engaged in the forms of revolutionary struggle that they predicted and they seem to be th- they therefore seem to be acting against their own interests and generally what's that what that has provoked is a turn to Mostly psychological theories of political motivation, according to which various theorists and commentators and analysts have dis- have decided that well, people are obviously not acting in their objective interests because if they were, they if they were, they would be revolutionary socialists, as predicted by Marx. Therefore, they must be motivated by something else, some irrational psychological identification, or some other sense of belonging, or or they or maybe they're not motivated by interest at all they're motivated by by values values of this kind of abstract category which everybody you know mainstream political science is always referring to and never defining uh they're motivated by one of these other things and our argument is that this is really a kind of misstep this is a a wrong direction in which to take the analysis that rather than than arguing that when people don't um when people don't act as predicted by classical Marxism. That that's therefore because they're not acting in their interest at all. Rather, we we say it's important to recognise that in any actually existing modern society, contemporary society, almost any individual or group will have very complex sets of interests, um, some of which, if you, if you analyse them at an appropriate level of abstraction, you can say that people have different sets of interests which could be realised under different historical conditions. And so, for example, I mean, the example we, we always give in this kind of context, it's easy to understand is, well, what about the white worker who votes for a far right party you know, with, with an anti-immigration agenda, or indeed votes for something like Brexit, whom classical Marxist theory insists is uh, voting simply against their objective interests? And our argument is, and well, that is an that is a view of the situation which has been countered by others. In some cases, uh, neo coming from a neo Marxist perspective, and in other cases, coming from a different perspective which focuses, for example, on white supremacism, but not on um, not on issues of class in the same way. And in either of those cases, people, are, some cases, people have said, well, actually, they are acting in their interest. They are acting in their interest as white people, uh, they're in they, who have an interest in reproducing white supremacy. Or they're acting or they're acting uh, in their interests uh, according to a certain logic of differentiation, which means that you know in a racist society under racial capitalism, uh, white workers are rewarded for being right. They're given you know what some what American Marxist theorists for example, have called the, the wages of whiteness. And our argument is that well actually all of these things are sort of correct. you need a perspective which can take account of all of these insights together and say that well it's it is definitely true that under the the most op- the, the most optimal imaginable historical conditions it would be in the interest of those workers to throw in their lot with a, a, an international communist movement to completely reject uh, all persistent forms of race, ra- uh, racism even those that privilege them in the short term and embrace a communist future and this this would be their interest as conceived in classical marxism as conceived within which, as conceived within what thinkers like Jody Dean have called the communist horizon, but our argument is that of course there is also, if you like, there are also there are other horizons within which people can conceive their interests. So, if the same worker is completely convinced that there is no realistic prospect of socialist, not only of socialist revolution but even of mild social democratic reform, then it becomes, you know. A, becomes sort of unfortunately it becomes fairly rational for them to accept that the only way they can protect or defend their interests is to defend their sectional privileges as white people and to commit themselves to a project which is going to do that um and you think you know in between in between that kind of a conservative horizon and a communist horizon i mean there are various other horizons we yeah we we point to for example the idea of a social democratic horizon within which it it also makes sense for workers to uh, reject racism and conservatism in favor of some expansive project of ex, you know, expanding public public provision and workers' rights yeah, but without um, expecting the necessary condition for that to be the complete abolition of capitalist social relations. So within all those uh, in all those ways, this, this concept of interest we think is a, a, a sort of a complex understanding of interests as being multiple, complex, potentially overlapping, potentially contradictory, is a really useful way of understanding people's behaviour and understanding the way in which common sense is, to some extent, the common sense that people hold, the assumptions people have about what is and isn't politically feasible or possible in a given moment – will partly just be shaped by psychological factors and, and by pure propaganda factors. We absolutely don't rule out the point that, for example, many people are just completely misinformed about the actual nature of society because the media lie to them. We don't rule that out. That will always always be part of it. That will be part of the story, but it's, it's very rarely the whole story. Um, that The common sense is that people will um, adopt... Or uh, will partly be a bit of, be a dependent upon their general sense of what the balance of forces is in a society and what the actual political possibilities emerging from that balance of forces is, and the overall the political upshot of that is that one a key task for progressive forces is 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 not just to say to people that your common sense perspective on the world is wrong, here is a correct common sense perspective with which we can replace it. Rather, is to say to people, look... Because the thing is, most people don't really, I mean, part of our point is, I mean, we think all the best evidence is, like most people in a society like modern Britain or America or Australia, have a, do have a, base, a, a basically a pretty decent understanding of how power works that, uh, in the society, that it isn't fair, that capitalism is very destructive. They also don't believe that much can be done about it. They don't see much opportunity to do much about it. So the task of progressive forces, we think, is generally to construct sufficiently large sort of coalitions of interests that it can convince people that there is actually some point kind of shifting their gaze from a very conservative horizon of just defending what they already have defending their sexual interest towards you know at least a slightly more progressive you know more elevated horizon at which they could conceive of themselves as having shared interests with many other people you uh, might be apparently very different from them
0: yeah great that's uh, covered a lot of my questions actually <laughs> um, so I think we should kind of move on to um, looking at like platforms and finance capital now, because that's obviously an integral part of the book. So firstly, I guess, what is a platform? It's used in everyday discourse, but, you know, actually rarely have I sort of considered its constituent characteristics Um, and maybe tie that in with um, Gramsci's notion of historic block, uh, which you say is sort of aligns closely with hegemonic platforms. Um, Yeah.
2: Yeah, so, so platform, as, as you've mentioned, you know, we might use it in kind of everyday speech to refer to things like, I don't know, Google or Facebook, their platforms. We might also sometimes, you know, in discourses around kind of free speech um, and, and who should have a right to speak and on what topics people talk about, you know, giving people a platform. Um, in the sense that we use it in the book, we're, we're kind of taking it from the... Um, from the usage that's used in in the kind of uh, the technology sector, where um, basically most of the the, the leading um, you know the, the most wealthy companies in the world are operators of platforms, and um, you know if we're thinking about Amazon, if we're thinking about Google, if we're thinking about Facebook, if we're thinking about Microsoft, if even if we're thinking about Apple, they. What all of them do is operate um, a platform. So, so in terms of the sort of, uh, sort of business studies theory about well, what is a platform? Why is this? Why why a platform business is different to other businesses, and therefore, how does this term platform come to be a kind of object of study um, that we should we should pay attention to? Um, and and you know maybe we should think in this case about something like Microsoft. So, Microsoft in the mid nineties. Um, actually developed internally a uh, a platforms group that was designed to drive profits by by taking the strategy of uh, what's called platformization, turning a a business which sells products, in this case, digital products, operating systems, um, uh, and um, productivity software into a platform. And what that meant was um, basically... Uh, you know, trying to create uh, many, many forms uh, of lock-in to the basic platform of Windows. So this meant things like, well, you don't, you want people to be using your, you know, your browser. So so you'll bundle in Internet Explorer into it, um, and this got them into lots of trouble with the EU. They were famously um, accused of being monopolists, which was absolutely correct. The platformization strategy is basically, you know, and it's it, it, to kind of put it in very general terms to get people to adopt um, your system and to use your system to build their own systems on, on on top of. So, in the case of Microsoft Windows, this would be software, getting people to use software that runs on Windows rather than uh, on iOS or or. Um, Linux or some competing operating system. In the case of Facebook this would mean, you know, getting people to join Facebook and do their social networking on Facebook. And the basic element that kind of, you know, l- leads platforms to almost inherently be monopolistic in nature is the fact that which which is obviously great for a business. Every capitalist business wants to be a monopoly. You know, up until the point when they get in trouble with regulators, but up until that point it's a fantastic way of making money. Um because you basically control the market that you're operating it. And there's a kind of intrinsic relationship on the one hand between, um, you know, the more uh, useful your platform is, the more people will use it, the more people that use it, the more useful it will be and the more embedded it becomes. So this is the kind of, this is how these, these kinds of digital infrastructures have managed to obtain this, you know, in each case, an incredibly sort of profitable business model and an incredibly central role within our uh, digital existence. Um, we think that you can use the term platform more broadly than that. So, you know, the, the term gains currency from the technology sector, which most kind of flagrantly does this, but more or less any system that another system depends upon cannot, can operate as a platform. Um, and, you know, you can certainly consider the global financial system to be, An incredibly influential platform, Um, and you know, why why is this a matter for 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 kind of uh, politics? Why why is this a concern to us? Well, you know, I mean, we can see in terms of the emerging debate um, around Silicon Valley and around, uh, particularly around social networks, uh, the use of data, their particular role in kind of regulating and 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 even sort of manipulating sort of public political speech. That these are very influential. Um, systems, um, but more broadly, and this is where it links to the uh, the idea from um, Gramsci around um, the historic block, is that for, for for Gramsci, when he's thinking about kind of the the process of assembling hegemony, so he's interested, you know, from the point of view of, of of the Communist Party in Italy, you know, how do we contest the system of power that exists? Well, you need to see how they got it. And then maybe we can do some, some analogical things from a kind of communist perspective that would also enable us to gain. And so he looks at, you know, how various, you know, sort of fractions of classes come to, um, ally with others, with other groups, um, and begin to, you know, obtain hegemonic power in various ways, particularly through various elements of the state apparatus, but what distinguishes these sort of really long-lasting forms of hegemony, and you could say neoliberalism has been a very long-lasting form of hegemony, um, is that they go beyond just controlling, you know, um, you know, having parliamentary majorities or or having kind of political control, um, and it's, it's far more expansive. So they move into things. You know, in Gramsci's case, I think he's really interested in is the economy. So you know, a historic bloc will tend to reform the economy. Um, and the domain of production in such ways that it will support that political um, that political system. So in a similar kind of way, when we're thinking about platforms today, including the, the, the tech platforms most obviously, um, our interest is really in terms of the way in which they were shaped by neoliberalism, the way they were shaped by kind of neoliberal patterns of thought, the way in which they sort of worked to deliver the interest to get... Um, the kind of the classes of people who control them and own them to to give them the world that they want Um, and the way in which they serve to kind of embed neoliberalism in everyday life in terms of the way in which we, um, you know, interact with each other, particularly when we're thinking about, you know, social media. Um, There's been a lot of focus, particularly from sort of liberal uh, critics. I'm thinking especially of people like Shoshana Juboff here on the kind of surveillance side of digital platforms, particularly their um, usage of data. Um, but much more kind of problematic for for us, certainly, is the way in which they basically naturalise a lot of the kind of facets of neoliberalism that, are, that end up being most kind of socially pervasive. Um, I mean, my classic example would be, um, again, similar to education, but even more pernicious, is the way in which on social media, everything has a metric attached to it everything has a number. And, you know, when I introduce this idea to my students, they're sort of surprised by it because it's just like it's the water they've grown up in, right? This world of where every social interaction is um, has a metric. Everything is is potentially gameable. Um, and just in this kind of incredibly simple way that every interaction has a number attached to it on a, on a social network um, is an example of the way in which the, these kinds of Um, The sort of neoliberal management techniques end up being uh, kind of incorporated by digital platforms and and sort of become part of the fabric, become part of the kind of the everyday mechanisms of the way in which we experience social reality. So to that extent, you can kind of see particularly digital platforms as being, you know, paradigmatically neoliberal institutions. Um, But we want to go a little bit further because, you know... in our sort of argument, we we entertain the idea, as sort of many people are these days, that, that neoliberalism is is on its way out. But if we're thinking about, well, what can we do, then it kind of, you know, we need to understand the ways in which neoliberalism is and isn't on its way out. So it is on its way out. It is in in its kind of death throes at certain levels. But on other levels, it isn't. Um, and... It's really the kind of within the sort of infrastructures of neoliberalism, the kind of the deep infrastructures uh, that it that it is kind of most firmly embedded. Um, whereas in its more kind of um, maybe ephemeral areas like within kind of popular consent within the media, even within kind of politics, particularly in um, America and the UK. Uh, it's 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 insignificant trouble, and even kind of, you know, politicians like Liz Truss, a uh, new prime minister in the UK. She's you know pretty much just a Thatcherite cosplayer, um, who who very much gives the appearance of of you know wanting to do all the same kind of things that that Thatcher did in the early era of neoliberalism. Even she is having to you know massively intervene in our energy market. So, you know, you can see the ways in which neoliberalism is kind of slipping at the level of kind of consent, at the level of its ideas to not necessarily convince people um, of their merits so much as convince people that the world inevitably will be like this. However, at the level of kind of the infrastructures, at the level of the platforms, you know, we still have everything, you know, that that was generated under neoliberalism. um, And this kind of infrastructure is still the kind of environment, forms the environment in which the kind of, the replacement for neoliberalism is being contested,
0: I think. Yeah, so tied into that is, you know, a lot of um, kind of the effects of um, platforms, um, you kind of locate in the domain of passive consent. So, you know, uh, there's a mention of, you know, Twitter users who complain about being on Twitter all the time, but are sort of constantly on Twitter. Um, So... (laughs) Um again, this ties, this ties into the assertion that you made that, you know, the crisis of neoliberalism is one in which, um, you know, the vital platforms for maintaining the hegemony remain strong, despite all of the, you know, bluster about the imminent death of neoliberalism or the move towards, I don't know, neo-feudalism or some other neologism that we use. So what are the strategic implications of this kind of passive consent for what, um, you know, we might describe as the broad left, particularly um, given our kind of current reliance on you know, these platforms to disseminate um, sort of our politics?
1: Well, I think um, there's a few different questions there. I would say we don't really know what the implications of our reliance on platforms is going to be. There's a number of ways that could go. It could be that our reliance Mm -hmm. on platforms is going to turn out to be totally disastrous because as soon as there's any real contestation over uh, certain kinds of class relations, in the relatively near future, then they will just use their power to freeze out any kind of anti-capitalist forces. Uh, I think probably, uh, I sort of doubt things are going to come to that kind of a head anytime soon, because as we say towards the end of the book, you know, the most pressing political problem right now, globally, is climate change. And, you know, really, although the, the, the section of the capitalist class, which is the most powerful and is the most in some sense is the most capitalist in a way is is tech the one the section which is also that's the most immediately dangerous to human existence and probably has to be isolated is, is mm. fossil fuel capital and probably I, I in the end i don't think you know i don't think like facebook are going to sort of mm. risk a, a global revolt of users by not letting people on facebook who want to you know sort of freeze that who want to you know get rid of um carbon capital so but um the bigger the more general strategic um implication of our analysis of things like passive consent is to some extent is the one i've already alluded to mm-hmm. which is that the 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 absolute importance of building sufficiently large coalitions political coalitions to be able to convince people who are not actively enthusiastic about neoliberalism or post neoliberalism or wherever we are, but also not actively mobilized it against it. And if this sounds really obvious. I keep feeling like I have to apologize for saying it because it seems so obvious. But, you know, all my experience of Uh, you know teaching and researching around these areas but also being active in various kinds of politics it has told me that a a lot of people really sort of struggle to think in these terms that for and so if you want an example of how this tends to play out I mean one of the arguments we make towards the end of the book is if you're trying to build a political coalition around an issue around a set of demands mm-hmm. or uh, you're trying to build put together a coalition of people of a shared interest in a po- in you know in a policy agenda like you know reversing neoliberalism, decommodifying you know de you know, commodifying education for example then i mean it sounds so obvious but you need to first you need to figure out who are the easiest people who are not currently part of your coalition or not very or not actively within it or clearly supporting it and and, and reach them you know, find the find the easiest people to reach who are not yet part of your coalition and we make this distinction we make this point because it's a distinction from what is usually what is a, a very often a sort of um assumption on the left which is well actually what you need to do is you need to find the people who are the most exploited the most oppressed the most because they're the people who will have the most to gain from joining your coalition and the people who will be most mobilizable and all historic precedent going back you know the past few centuries suggests this is not the case really that that historically you know you only manage to mobilize the poorest and most oppressed people when you are really on the verge of something like a revolution that when you're under historical conditions like the ones we're working under now where we think we're clearly not on the verge of a revolution then Unique. than those people, by definition, by virtue of their marginalisation and oppression, those constituencies are usually, not always, but normally, very difficult to reach. So the example we give in the book of a social political constituency that hasn't really been effectively mobilised in the UK, for example, is is teachers. You know, teachers. We think, for example, school teachers should be very easy to reach. They are very easy to reach. They're very easy, relatively easy to reach, and they have a very clear interest um, in 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 undertaking a very direct critique of neoliberalism and its impact on them. But compared to many other countries, you know, teachers in Britain, as a political constituency, are really acquiescent. They're, they're demobilized. They're demoralized. They're not very well politically educated and we think that you know it, that would be a really that would be a good example of some very low hanging fruit a very easy win for movements like the ones that are emerging now around you know things like enough is enough um that we would really, you know, we, we think ought to have attention paid to them. This is not by any means to say, you can never, as we say in the book, it's not by any means to say that the task of, you know, mobilising and, and defending the interest of the most exploited people is not always an, an urgent one, but it is to, you know, you asked what the strategic implications are, and I think the strate- that is, those are some of the strategic implications of our approach, are that the nature of consent And the nature of the distribution of passivity and activity within creating different forms of consent is such that you can't assume that the people who are the most directly exploited in a given situation are going to necessarily be the ones who it's going to be the easiest to persuade that it is possible to do something about it basically.
0: right um so just kind of to round up the discussion of the book really because i don't want to keep you too long shall we um kind of touch on the grounds for hope i suppose um so the you know the the gramscian quote you know the peasant of the intellect and the the optimism of the will is probably thrown around a little bit too much but i think it's quite kind of relevant the present moment um so you know what are the grounds of hope you kind of have a a very short chapter at the end of your book kind of touching on this a little bit um so yeah what are the grounds for hope in um today's political climate do you think or you know to what extent is hope even a necessary component um in struggle
1: well i think the first i mean the first thing to say is uh, i don't i don't think if i don't think that if you look at the current historical situation at an appropriate historical scale uh, and as Gramscians we are all about the appropriate historical scale for analysis then you would say that that the left is really at a kind of low point of it. Um, I think I think you would say, and and I think this is consistent with our analysis in the book. I mean really, the low point for the at least in the Anglophone world, the real the low point for the left was a, sort of the early two thousands around the moment of the the Gulf War starting. That's a moment when really, it was only the kind of spectacular protest, to things like the alter globalization movement, that, that really seemed to mark any kind of public departure from a neoliberal consensus. Um, and they were clearly completely incapable of, of actually generating a kind of popular mass movement against it. And you know, anything we could we could recognise as the organised left had just been completely out of the running and out of mainstream politics since the late eighties. And that condition really, that situation really obtains right up until 2015, 2016 to the emerge in the English, in the, at least in the, the Anglophone, the Atlantic Anglosphere, like America, the United States. Um, Canada's always a bit of a law unto itself, so I apologize to Canadians. Um, But within that sphere, you know, it's the moment, it's very striking that it happens on both sides of the Atlantic pretty much at the same time. You know, the Bernie movement happens uh, and the Corbyn movement happens. And it's a huge event. It's a, it only, you know, that is the first time since the late 1980s that the organized left has even really existed as a kind of significant political force. Now, of course. It gets partially, only partially, by current. It seems at the moment only partially defeated in the states. Gets defeated in Britain in 2019, unsurprisingly, after four years of struggle. But honestly, from an an objective perspective, it was never going. Yeah, it was. It was bound to suffer some defeat. You know, the left wasn't going to come from where it was in 2015, a, a position of having been a total historical irrelevance for 30 years, to suddenly achieving the greatest victory ever in the history of left politics in Britain. That wasn't going to happen. And suffering a big defeat after four years of relative success is, is just completely par for the historical course. That's what you would expect to happen, frankly. You would expect it to take much longer than four or five years, which even... So I think the general mood of kind of real despondency um, amongst people who were really involved, say in the Corbyn movement, who have still really, in many, not really recovered from the defeat of twenty, of the election defeat of twenty nineteen, and and the the backlash from the residual neoliberal political class in the form of the right wing of the Labour Party and the current leadership of the Labour Party, I, I think it does largely just proceed from you know, not having an appropriate historical perspective and just, you know, not really thinking about the fact that there was history before 2015 and what that meant. So I don't even think... So the main, the source of hope is, look, we have an organised political left now you know, we didn't even have a left that could get beaten in like 2014, so the left got beaten in Britain in 2019. But at least we have one to get beaten. That itself is a massive gain. It's a huge gain. So I, that, so that is, so my general, I mean, my sense of you know why the sources of hope, my, why they're sources of hope, because there's no, I mean, why wouldn't I, it's only, it's only from the, having a very, very short-term perspective. I think, which makes people think, well, there isn't. It's not quite obvious why we should be fairly hopeful. But Alex has a lot of other really interesting. Yeah, uses
2: I mean, my my source of hope would be basically, uh, characteristically quite a negative one, which is that we're in a you know we are in the still in the early years of a global hegemonic crisis, and our best guide as as to you know what what that's like is is to look back to the past when you can identify similar kind of periods, and the last one was in the nineteen seventies, and you see a similar set of kind of You know the political common sense that that kind of rules the world, or at least you know large parts of it, no longer works. People aren't convinced by it. Um, The you know the global economy is in significant trouble. There's an energy crisis. Uh, There's stagflation, the combination of inflation and economic stagnation, Um, and we can see all of that today. So we're we're in a very very significant um, crisis point, and. You know that is a situation within which um, the rules of politics, the kind of the 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 range of acceptable opinions, is is much more fluid. The the you know the kind of the expansion of um, you know, neo socialist political forces within mainstream British and American politics of the last you know over the last seven years is a result of that. It's a result of this kind of broader. Uh, period of crisis that we're, we're heading into. And this, you know, the crisis is deepening. And um, you know, this is the condition within which radical change is possible. The conditions you know, from from kind of, you know, the mid-80s to, uh, you know, even up until 2015 were not ones in which, you know, radical change was possible. It, it was not going to be possible. Um, so radical change is possible and any kind of localized defeats are just that localized defeats, the kind of, you know, the range of, of interests that, you know, for example, neo-socialist movements, but also kind of other ones um, such as Black Lives Matter, uh, various kind of movements, um, green political movements, Green New Deal, um, you know, all of these, all the way up to kind of recent upsurges in, um, uh, union activity, all of these, you know, have interests that, that, you know, they're not going away, they're only going to get more and more present. And that is a, you know, a fertile ground for, you know, a left hegemonic politics to, to operate in.
0: Yeah, sure, anything could happen. So, uh, final question other than kind of engagement um, around the release of this book, do you have any other projects, uh, books, or um, et cetera, that you'd like to plug?
1: Do we have anything to plug? <laughs> 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 We've only, uh, we, I don't think so. No, um, we're, we're in the middle of plugging plugging the book at the moment. Yeah, we're plugging the book. <laughs> yeah. I've okay. got, you know... Uh, I've got I've got several regular podcasts I appear on, but people can just Google that if they're interested. It's not hard to find.
0: (laughs) Yeah, true. Okay, Um, so thank you both so much for joining me.
1: Thanks very much. Thanks 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 a lot.